If you turn with me to Ephesians, we're going to be looking at two passages today, uh, and a snippet of one, our foundation, uh, and we're going to look at then the second passage together as well. First, uh, from Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read from verses 28 through 31. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Also printed in your bulletins is Genesis chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 18 through 25. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is God's word. Now, if you're new to Metro, we're going through a series in the book of Ephesians that we started since January. It's our longest look of a single book because it's taken all year to go through it. And the book of Ephesians is not a long book. It's six chapters. Uh, But in chapter 5, here the Apostle Paul gives us a biblical understanding of marriage. And so we're going to spend some time, roughly seven weeks. We started last week, so if you're new or visiting, you're welcome. Uh, You haven't lost out, and uh, it's a great opportunity to, again, gain and learn what God has shown us about the institution of marriage. Now, the modern generation, modern generation is characterized by just great anxiety, great uncertainty. And when they're confronted with a biblical understanding of marriage, there's a tremendous amount of fear because you have to be vulnerable. You have to open yourself up to hurt. You have to open yourself up to criticism because of the investment that goes into a marriage, because of the intentionality that that is called for in a biblical view of marriage because of the work that you have to do. Now, if you don't do that, you're going to be consumed by selfishness on the inside and by loneliness, aloneness on the outside. You're going to experience the alienation of your own selfishness. You're going to experience the isolation of your own selfishness. What is the inherent purpose of marriage? Now, last week, we looked at marriage as friendship. That the foundation of every marriage, there is a friendship, a deep friendship that continues to grow. But what's the purpose of marriage? We're going to look at four things as quickly as we can. First, the purpose, then the practice of it, 
then what poisons it, and lastly, the power to live it out. The purpose, the practice, what poisons it, and the power to live it out. First, we're going to look at the purpose of marriage. If you were here last week, we said marriage is a friendship. Marriage is a partnership. Marriage is a companionship. There's this oneness that comes with a common vision. And it's the most intense, the most beautiful, the most lasting friendship that you will ever experience if you have the pleasure and the joy of being in a marriage. Now, what's the point of it? And because it's not, marriage is not meant to be an end in itself. It's not meant to be a goalpost, but a signpost. So what's the purpose of it? Where does it point? And in verse 31 of Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul refers to a passage in Genesis that we just read. And if you go all the way back to that first book in Genesis, in the Bible, why did God create us altogether? Why did God create humans? Now, you haven't read this, but in Genesis chapter 1, right at the end, in verse 26 to 27, God says, he creates man, he says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule so that, and so, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Over and over in those two verses, you see, in our image, in our likeness, in their likeness, in God's likeness, in his own image, what's the purpose of creation? What's the purpose of God's creation of man? God created man to reflect, to reflect his nature, the communicable attributes of his nature. Communicable meaning you can acquire it, you can catch it, you can learn it, you can grow in it. Because there are incommunicable attributes of God God that we often want to uh, imitate that you can't. But there are things that we can imitate, things that you can acquire. Attributes like love, attributes like patience, attributes like wisdom, attributes like joy. You can imitate those because in a sense, to the degree that you love somebody, to the degree that you admire somebody, you become like that person. You become that which you love to the degree that you love that person. That's what it means to imitate. That's what it means to reflect. In other words, God says, let's create man in our image. So there's this love relationship between God and his creation of man. And in that love relationship, as you come to know and delight in the Father, you begin to imitate and reflect these attributes of God. Now, what does that mean for us, especially in marriage? God said, let us make man in our image. That means that from the beginning of time, by nature, because God himself is a community, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that is the most intimate relationship. That is the most intimate friendship, the most intimate partnership, the most intimate companionship. That is the most intimate oneness that we will ever know. It is the most intense, most beautiful, most lasting community. If you look at the creation story, there's this joy that God experiences in creating. Throughout the Bible, you see the Father, uh, the Son, the Holy Spirit submitting to one another, constantly submitting to one another. There's this joy in creating. There's this joy in this partnership in submitting to one another. There's this loving of one another, this doting on each other. Each person of the Trinity, different, 
very different, unique roles, unique persons of the Godhead, wholly unique persons of God, and yet they're perfectly one, perfectly in union. And together, they're all sufficient. There's never any need, but out of the sheer joy, out of the sheer love, sheer grace, they come together and they create. Not because there's a void in their lives. God is all sufficient. It's one of the incommunicable attributes of God that we often want to imitate. And when you try to do that, you can't. We fail in doing that. So there's no void in God. There's no need to be fulfilled in God. But because there's joy, because there's love overflowing, when he says, let's create man in our image, what he's saying here is, out of my joy, out of this love, out of this delight, Let's expand that joyfulness. We can't contain it. They're just going to expand that joyfulness. They're going to expand that love in creation. They do it together. Let us make man in our image. We are created in God's image. And so the best way to reflect, to bear that image, we're created to be image bearers. The best way to reflect that image is in the context of community because God himself is community. So every day of creation, you see the God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. You see the Godhead. They're creating. Let us create man in our image. You see the joy. God creates, and the Bible says, and God saw that it was good. The next day, God creates, and God saw that it was good. The next day, God creates, and God saw that it was good. And you get to Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. God is now looking at everything that he has created, all that he had made. And it was very good. It was very good. The benediction, the good word. He's reflecting on the image of creation, man, and it was very good. But then you get to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and God says what? It is not good for man to be alone. That's That's where you see the first malediction. It's not good. Why is it not good? It's because Adam's loneliness, Adam being alone, Adam having no one to submit to and to submit, be submitted to, Adam not having a partner, a helper, a companion, Adam not having a friend, he's saying that does not reflect my image. Alone, you cannot reflect the joy and the love. There are things that you cannot bear. You cannot reflect on your own. If you are isolated, you can't love. If you're isolated, you can't delight in somebody, right? So there's these things that we can acquire, we can demonstrate and experience that alone does not reflect the joy and the love and the submission and the friendship and the partnership and the companionship and the oneness that we were created to experience and and that we were created to demonstrate in the fullest sense. Because God by nature is community, we need to be in community to worship. We need to be in community to glorify God. We need to be in community to praise God, to share in His beauty, joy. In fact, anytime you experience anything that you delight in, anything that you enjoy, what do you do? Do you keep it to yourself? The first thing you want to do is you share it. We praise. We glorify. We're built for that. And the only way you can do that is in the context of community. By the way, we need to be 
You need to be, it's why we need to be intimately involved, intimately connected to a church body. See, the book of Ephesians, the overarching context is what? It's the meaning of the church. And so, in the first chapter, all the way before, Paul says, uh, submit to the ministry of the word. That's the, sorry, the last chapter, in chapter 4. You can't worship alone. You need a community uh, of God in your life to mature. It's why worship is so important. It's not just about you being able to worship by yourself. Nowadays, we see the birth of people wanting to be spiritual but not religious, and so they don't go to a church. They're not intimately connected to a church. But here, in the Word of God, you see that going completely against that. You need a community. It's, not, it's more than just about being, submitting yourself to the ministry of the Word all by yourself. You need a gospel community in your life to submit to. You need a community to mature. It's why worship is so important. It's why community groups exist in our church. It's why you need life-strengthening, life-giving friendships in the church in your life. The gospel enables the possibility of real friendship, the possibility of genuine friendship, the possibility of lasting friendship, and the most intimate reflection of the beauty of community even through all the difficulties, is marriage. Adam and Eve, together, they're able to do something, something good that could not be done alone. By their very nature of being together, they are imitating and reflecting God's nature in community. Look at the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in constant submission. The Son submitting to the Father. The Father loves glorifying the Son. The Son and the Spirit in their, in their context. The Son says, I'm going to send the counselor to you. Here you see perfect submission, different roles, unique roles, perfect submission, enabling each other. So when God says, I will make a helper for Adam, the actual Hebrew word there being used is an enabler. In the Trinity, each person in the Trinity, in joy, in love, their role enabling the other person to experience their fullest potential. And that is the beauty of marriage that God has given us. It's a gift. Your spouse helps you, for better or for worse, in your mind at least, it's always for the better. Your spouse helps you reflect the image of God in the most special way so that you can reach your fullest potential. No one else is licensed to do that but your spouse. No one else is charged to do that but your spouse. No one else can get deep enough with you but your spouse. Oneness. Union. That's the purpose. The second is the practice. The practice of image bearing in marriage. Because the premise of today's text is verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Here, Paul references that chapter, Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 to 24. What's going on here? Adam meets Eve. And when Adam meets Eve, he says, I'm going to paraphrase for you. Basically, what he's saying is, now I've met the person who is a part of me. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You know me like myself, and I want to know you like yourself. Because I know you, 
I'm complete. Because I know you, I know myself even better than before I met you. Now I know what my full potential could be. I'm enabled. Now I know who I am, what God has created me and designed me for. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, they were both naked. That means they saw each other perfectly, thoroughly, and yet there was no shame. There's a soulful oneness, a nakedness of the soul when you meet a spouse who is your best friend and you're totally open with them. So open, when you get to that openness, you're you're legally vulnerable. That's what you're saying in marriage. So the first practice of marriage here, the first practice of image bearing is oneness. A oneness. Verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother to be united with his wife. The word united, it's, it's a lost word. It's like a lost word in our colloquialism today. It's the word cleave. To cleave, it's a very technical term. He says, Paul says, you're going to leave your father and mother and you're going to cleave with your wife. It's a technical, it's a covenantal word, and it means to be glued to, to be attached. In a life-bound, love-bound, legally-bound relationship. That's why there's nakedness. The nakedness comes as a result of being naked and vulnerable in every other context. And it's designed by God. And so when you see your spouse, what you're saying is, now that I know you, I know myself fuller. Now that I see you, I see God with greater clarity. And you enter into marriage through this promise, this public promise. One of my favorite movies, or sappy movies, I guess, is Sleepless in Seattle. It's an older movie. It came out in the 90s. And there, uh, the main character, Tom Hanks, he says this. He's reflecting on his wife who had passed away. And mainly what he says is, he says, it was like a million tiny little things that when you added them all up, it meant that we were supposed to be together. And I knew it. It was like coming home, only to no home I'd ever known. What he's saying there is, when I left, it's like I left home to come to a truer home. That's what marriage is. Verse 31, he points, uh, the Apostle Paul, he points to when Adam first met Eve and what, he, what happens when Adam meets Eve. It's the first poem in the entire Bible. It's the first song that you hear, the first song that's written of all time, the original song. It sings about union. No one says in marriage, wait a second, cleave? I have to love somebody that way? There's so many rules. It's so restrictive. No one does that. Not when you get married. You don't do that. Oneness is exclusive. You're bound. You are attached to that person. It's sealed with a promise. And because you're one, the Apostle Paul here says that you're going to serve your spouse the way you would love yourself, the way you would serve yourself because you're attached. You're glued together. Because you're one, you're going to serve your spouse. If you come back to the book of Ephesians here, Paul says in marriage, you're guided by a vision of the radiant future. We talked about this last week in friendship. A radiant future. A radiant future glory of that person. Who they are going to become in Christ. And so we talked about this. That it, there's some things that we do in practice to help that person realize 
their truer selves according to their design. You see, you're guided by that vision. And so in verses 26 to 27, Paul says, you're going to cleanse them. In verses 28 to 29, he says, you're going to feed them just as you would your own body because your desire for them is to become a greater image bearer of God, holy and blameless. That's what he says. That is a a means or a part of practicing oneness, right? And and the means that we do this, he says, to cleanse them, right? That's the first thing he says. You've got to address their flaws. See, when you clean yourself, you're naked. And because they're naked before you and you're naked before them, and because there's no shame, you can cleanse them. You can help them. It's not something that you should be afraid of. It's not something that you should have an aversion to, right? No one sits there and says, oh, I don't want to take a shower because I'm afraid, you know, all my dirt is going to get exposed. No one does that. The very nature of cleansing is what? To remove, to cleanse yourself, to, to remove the dirt, to remove the grime. And now you have a helper who sees more imperfections than you do. You have a helper who sees more dirt than you do, but they do it with all love and you're naked before them. And so they want to cleanse you. It is their joy to cleanse you. The second thing Paul says is you need to feed them. You need to nurture them. You need to nurture that relationship. You have to love them and serve them. And if you do that, if you demonstrate your love, demonstrate your, your delight in them, demonstrate your affirmation in them, uh, serve them in that way, if you do that, you're going to find through that service, you're going to find through that labor that your love increases because your heart is totally bound up in that person, in your spouse. Your heart is totally bound up in their growth. Your heart is totally bound up in their maturity, in their future glory. Now, what that means is, because you're bound up, when they're sick, you'd rather be sick. Right? When they're hurting, you wish there was a way you could take away that hurt. You'd be willing to take on that hurt. When they're, uh, when they're down, you're down. When they're rejoicing and joyful, you share in that joy. Oneness. Oneness. So you cleanse them and you feed them. What that means is then your marriage is a priority. That's a third thing. The Bible teaches that your marriage is more important than your job. Your marriage is more important than your career. Your marriage, in a sense, is more important than your kids, your children, more important than anything. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. Think about this. In ancient times, to leave your father and to leave your mother, there was no internet. There was no uh, uh, you know, job fair or career fair back then. Your life was bound up in the lives of your family in ancient times. So your family meant your life. Your family meant your name. Your family was your identity. It was fundamental for your survival. Your family, even today, is the greatest shaping influence in my life. I didn't want to believe that growing up. I realize now growing up how much of a foundationally shaping influence my family was in my life, both good ways and bad ways. Paul says marriage is even more powerful than that. It's going to drive you even more. It's going to shape you even more. It's going to impact you the most. most. So it has to be a priority. You have to treat it with utmost priority. If you don't nurture your marriage, you're going to introduce all sorts of distortions into your marriage. You have to leave. You have to cleave. 
You have to leave and cleave. You have to leave and cleave. Paul says, verse 32, that's another sermon, by the way. We're going to hit that. We're going to get to that. Paul says in verse 32, this is a profound mystery. That marriage is a reflection of our relationship, the church's relationship to Christ. That marriage is a reflection, a mirror for that relationship between Jesus and his church. Everything that your wife, everything that your husband does, you will never get the point of marriage until you understand the relationship between Jesus and his church. And so marriage is that most special channel. It's a mystery from God. It's a gift of God. It's a grace of God that's given to increase your potential, increase your power, increase your joy. You have to treat it with the utmost priority. We love landscaping our homes. We love tending to our gardens, the intricacies of tending to a garden. I I don't like gardens. I'm a very... (laughs) Yesterday, I was installing an air conditioner, and it took two of us, first of all, uh, and, and we were dripping with sweat, and on one hand, holding the thing so it doesn't fall out of a window on top of another person, while we're looking through the instructions, and my friend says to me, uh... I don't think we were designed to do this. We're probably better just being inside the house and just working on our computers or something like that, you know. Um, you know, we're not, I'm not good at tending to gardens, but there are a lot of people here who love building up their house, working on their home, tending to gardens, landscaping. If you don't like do that, doing that, you like detailing your car, watching your car getting detailed. You know, you like doing that. You like, I don't know, uh, do, we're, we're, this is kind of like we're such nerdy like Asians, you know, like we like souping up our computers. Back in the day, you like doing that. I, I didn't do that either. I'm not very technical. I just like to use the computer. But, you know, a lot of us like to do that. We love doing that. We love working out. We love, we're very detailed in the way we work out, our dieting. We love doting our, on our kids and looking at them to make sure that they have every opportunity. We're very meticulous, almost neurotic over those kind of things. It's because we value our home. We value our cars. We value our body. We value our health. We value our kids. And Paul says, you are to love your spouse even more than that. Are you as detailed about that, like that in your marriage? Do you treat that with as great of a priority? Because marriage is greater and more important than all those things. One of the things I've learned as a, a minister and a pastor to other pastors in our church is their marriage. How is your marriage? How is your relationship going? Because if that is less important than your ministry, you will lose both. I've seen it. Very important, very powerful. The fourth thing, fourth way that we can practice oneness and uh, an image-bearing is that it means speaking truth. You take a bridge, and this bridge has structural defects in it. But you can't see those defects. I can't see those defects. What happens? It takes an 18-wheeler to run across that bridge. And when it moves over that bridge, and you're standing to the side, 
You see, the, you see the dirt also. You see the cracks. You hear the sounds. You see the dust start to come from under the bridge because it's trying to support this 18-wheeler, right? And uh, that's when the defect starts to show, and it strains that bridge. And every time that 18-wheeler goes over that bridge, you hear the cracks and pieces starting to fall from that bridge. Now you see where the mistakes are. Now you see where the flaws are. Do you blame the truck for that? No. The truck didn't create those fractures, but the truck reveals those fractures. And marriage is just like that. Things that your friends have been trying to tell you all your life, things that your parents have been trying to tell you all your life, things that your siblings have been trying to tell you, and they are kind of in a danger zone every time they step in to tell you these things. They have to be very careful. You know why? Because you're not in a covenantal relationship with them. You never signed a legal document with them. And so you can walk out. You actually can walk out on your friends, and some of you have. You actually can walk out on your family, and some of you have. You actually can go distant from your siblings, and some of you have. But the thing is, look, they've been trying to tell you you are selfish. They've been trying to tell you you're arrogant. They've been trying to tell you you're an angry person. Friends, this is why we have to speak into our friends. Because if you love somebody and care for them to the degree that you do, you would speak to them. That's the cleansing part. Of course, there's the nurturing part and the feeding and the admiration and the affirmation and the doting, right? Visible signs of your love. But the thing is, you're called to, in relationship with you, every friendship, every relationship, in relationship with you, even your enemies are going to reveal fractures and cracks in your life, in your character. But your friends, your family, your siblings, they never signed any legal document to be in relationship with you. And so that's why they're so careful. But your spouse, your spouse literally has a license to do so. Your spouse, everyone who's married here, your spouse is selfish. Now, some of you are like, well, you didn't have to tell me that twice, right? Your spouse is selfish. Your spouse is fearful. Your spouse is proud. Your spouse is an angry person. Your spouse is filled with anxiety. Adam says, Eve is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She completes me. That's what Adam's saying. That means that if they're selfish, you are unselfish. You become unselfish and teach them what it means to not be selfish. If your spouse is afraid and fearful, you demonstrate courage and teach them what it means to be courageous. You point them to Christ to address their fractures, their defects, the selfishness, the fears. Teach them what it means to be humble. Teach them what it means to forgive. Teach them what it means to trust. If you don't, no one's going to haul you off to jail. No one's going to discipline you in the church. You're just merely not fulfilling what God has designed this marriage to do. But I'm not used to addressing my spouse's flaws. That's scary. Things are really good right now. I don't want to stir the pot. Look, if you are sacrificing their future glory, what you're called to do is to point them to their future glory. 
If you are sacrificing their future glory for this present peace, that is the ultimate danger, right? That is a greater loss. Some of you, you're being addressed right now. You know, we have many spouses. I've been in situations where uh, on the way to church, we'll get into an argument, right? And if you're being addressed right now, think about this. We have to look at it this way. Oftentimes, we often think that the biggest problem in our marriage is the conflict that we have with our spouse. But that's actually not true, okay? Conflicts exist in marriage. Conflicts exist because marriage has truly brought you into conflict with yourself. You now see yourself. Somebody is telling you who you are. You are in conflict with yourself. You just don't want to believe it. You just don't want to, you just don't want to heed that language. You don't want to heed that advice, that wisdom. You literally have wisdom in your face. And if you choose to ignore it, there's conflict. If you choose to neglect it over time, there's conflict. You have somebody telling you daily, it's a, it's a blessing of God, a grace of God. You have somebody telling you how sinful you are, showing you how sinful you are. Because every time you hurt your spouse, that's your sin. If you turn that around and want to blame that person, right, you're in conflict with yourself. You need to correct these things. And yet we see how wholly committed they are to you, how wholly devoted they are to you, how loving they are, how assuring your spouse is. Your spouse delights in you, melts in their hearts for you. Because that's how we were designed to be in marriage. On one hand, Jesus Christ, the gospel saves us from our sins. What marriage does is it helps you do away with these sins by bringing them to the forefront of your life, the things that you can't see. It's the things that you can't see. It's the tumor, the things that you can't see in your life that's killing you. And marriage is a gift of God, a grace of God to bring those things out. Your friendships do that. And if you're ignoring your friendships, you will not heed the advice and the counsel of your spouse. You have to be in practice of that today. Today. This is a call for everybody here in this room. Even if you're not married, you have to be in practice of that oneness tomorrow by heeding the counsel of godly people in your life that you know God has placed to help see the things that you don't see. You not being able to see it is not a good excuse. That's why they're there. Sometimes we're flying with blinders on, and it's dark, and it's cloudy, and you don't know where you're going. That voice that's in that earpiece telling you to go straight, veering off several degrees, go straight, proceed, slow down, that is wisdom. You would cling to that if that were you, if you saw yourself that way with clarity. Do you see that? Do you understand that? Marriage helps you. It's the most sanctifying It's the most sanctifying gift that God has given us to experience and realize our fullest potential. You can't escape looking at yourself when you're in marriage. You know, before you always put these things aside, now you have to address them. Third point, very quickly, what poisons image-bearing? If you create something, right, 
you build something according to a certain design, it's got to follow certain rules and regulations in order for it to function properly. If something's created, it needs to abide by certain rules, certain regulations of the creator in order to function. So when you get a car, you can't say, well, I get that the manual says I've got to put in this type of oil, but I don't, I've done this all my life. I'm going to put in this type of oil. Well, over the course of time, the corrosion will start to set in, and at some point, that corrosion becomes irreversible. What you can't do is you can't say, well, I know that it takes this kind of gas, but I'm going to put in sugar, right? Because sugar works for me, right? I don't like these rules. It's too restrictive, right? You're going to kill your car. You're going to destroy your car. If you didn't design the car, it's going to operate on the rules and the regulations of its creator, its engineer. Think about your body. Your doctor is telling you, you got to cut out certain foods. You got to eat leafy greens. You got to eat broccoli. I hate broccoli. You got to eat broccoli. You got you to go on a low carb diet, right? No one says when they go to a doctor, wait a second, what, do, what right do you have to tell me how to live my life? Your doctor is just telling you how to nurture your body according to its design. So if you don't nurture it, you're going to ruin your body. You did not design your marriage. You did not design your marriage. So when you enter into it, what's going to kill that marriage? What's going to poison that marriage? It is your sin. It is your selfishness. What is sin? Sin is anything. I'm going to give you a different definition of sin here. It's anything that threatens the design by which you were created to bear the image of God. That is sin. Anything that takes away from image bearing is sin. Anything that goes against image bearing is sin. Anything that takes away from the image of God in your life, is, in your marriage, is sin. So in a relationship, um, it happens when instead of you pointing your spouse to reflect the image of God, you're actually pointing your spouse to reflect your image, what you want, what you desire, how you, where you want to go, your direction. I want you to bear my image. It's not husbands only, it's wives too, both. Are con- there's a constant battle. There's constant enmity, in a sense, of wanting and battling for control, battling for power. That's going to ruin the design. The purpose of marriage is not to, on one hand, support your spouse. Godly support helps your spouse be better image bearers. So, in other words, conforming to their image or forcing them to conform to your image, you're violating the purpose of marriage in and of itself. You're violating that. Sin. Where's the power? Where do you get the power to live this way? You see, Adam and Eve, they were broken images of their creator. Sin has poisoned them. So they're broken if you have a mirror that shows a, a, at least somewhat of an image or a good reflection of the person standing in front of the mirror. Sin is like taking a bat and shattering that image so that it's still kind of there, but it's broken. It's a shattered image. So we can't look to Adam and what he did. You have to look to the greater Adam, the true image. How else would you know? The true image, the ultimate image. The author of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory. 
The author of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God. What does that mean? Marriage is designed with what? A vision. A vision of the radiance. He says, you will present them as a radiant church. You will present your spouse as a radiant church. The author of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the radiance of God. Jesus Christ is the Shekinah glory of God. That means that when God was leading his people out of Egypt, when he was leading them through the wilderness on that journey in the desert, in the wandering, he led them with his glory cloud. He led them with the fiery cloud, the fiery pillar. That was his radiance. It represented his power. It represented his wisdom. It represented his love. It represented a union because he was always there, shepherd and protecting his people. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. God the Father says, there's my son whom I love. He's doting on his son. He says, listen to my son. So the father is submitting to the son. The son is submitting to the father. There's this beautiful dance that's taking place in their submission to one another. It's another sermon. We're going to get there too. At Gethsemane, you have Jesus Christ. He's praying to the father. He says what? Take this cup from me. At that moment, he's seeing everything he's about to endure. Everything he's going to suffer. What he was designed, what he came to the earth for. Everything he's going to endure. That cup that he's talking about is the cup of God's wrath for the penalty for our sins. God, Father, take this cup from me. And yet he says, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, I'm committed to you. I and the Father are one. I'm committed to you. I'm one with you. I'm submissive to you, even if it costs me my life. Look at the vulnerability of Christ. Look at the submission of Jesus. Look at the love of Jesus, the way he delights and trusts in his Father. Even to the point of death, I'm trusting the Father. On the cross, he was reciting Psalm 22, he was singing utter trust in his father, knowing where he is going. My favorite hymn, uh, one of the verses begins with this, he left his father's throne above. What the author of that hymn is saying is that Jesus Christ left his father to be united to his wife. That's the church. We are the bride of Christ. To present us holy and blameless, a radiant church. Jesus Christ died for our holiness. Jesus Christ died so that we would be made righteous in him. Jesus is saying, by coming down, I'm committed and I'm submitting myself. I'm making myself totally vulnerable. So vulnerable, he didn't come as a king from the sky. He was born in a manger as a helpless child, a baby. And on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. We were broken, so he was broken. We were dead in sin, so he had to die. Union, oneness. And on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, now I have truly left the Father. I am forsaken. I am alienated from him. I am isolated and alone and bearing this burden, literally the weight of the world, on my shoulders. And that means because he was forsaken, he's saying, I've lost my name. I've lost my identity because I've left the Father's house. Everything that I fundamentally need for my survival is now gone. And I've lost my access to God so that I could be one with my bride. The Bible, the Bible says that Jesus Christ became sin 
so that we would be united. We would be reconciled to the Father. We would become the righteousness of God. When you see that the high king left the Father's house and his throne to be united with his bride, imperfect with all of her imperfections, and because he lives, we now live, there's the radiance. There's the image of total selflessness. There's the vision of that future glory that we are pointing our spouses to. If you keep, when you can see that Jesus Christ sacrificed his life, you can sacrifice your life for your spouse. You can point your spouse to the image of God. You can see the greater vision in marriage. That means you will sacrifice, you will labor, you will oftentimes pay the price. You will leave your father and mother to be united with your spouse. That means that there is hope and love and power to point each other to that radiance. There is a purpose, bearing the image of Christ, bearing the image of forgiveness, loving, serving, sacrificing, humility, grace, peace, In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with an ever-increasing glory. That's the purpose of marriage. Let's pray together.